Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. Today we are talking with singer-songwriter Samia. Samia's first full-length album, The Baby, which came out in 2020, got blazing reviews, with one reviewer saying that she navigates the trappings of young adulthood with subtle, poetic writing and a sardonically sunny indie rock sound. Samia just dropped her follow-up EP, Scout, with reviews comparing her to artists such as Stevie Nicks, Liz Fair, and Carly Rae Jepsen. That is putting her with some spectacular company. So check out Samia's music for yourself at samiaband.com. Now on the Going There podcast, we have the tough conversations to address important issues so that we can learn from each other, challenge the stigma of mental illness, and get the care we need. Samia talks about several difficult subjects. First, she talks about the experience of sexual trauma. And Samia explained the powerlessness and loss of control that can develop when one experiences trauma. Samia also talked about the sense of anxiety that she felt throughout her life, where her mind would focus on scary possibilities, things that could go wrong that she could not control. Samia also talks about how she feels that her eating disorder developed out of a sense of wanting to regain control in some way. During our conversation, she mentions having struggled with both anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. Anorexia nervosa is characterized by an obsessive desire to lose weight, often reducing one's weight to the point of being unhealthily underweight. Bulimia nervosa is characterized by binge eating episodes, in which a person eats a large amount of food while experiencing a sense of loss of control, along with compensatory purging behaviors such as vomiting or severe dieting. And when someone struggles with an eating disorder of any kind, one of the central features is the importance of body shape and weight in one's self-concept. And Samia talks about how she became so focused on reducing her weight to an unhealthily low level that it was difficult for her to even consider that it would be okay to be at a healthier weight. All of these issues contributed to Samia experiencing an ongoing feeling of self-loathing that is unfortunately very common for people who struggle with mental health issues in general. During our discussion, we talk about the ways that Samia engages in ongoing recovery. She talks about the role of weight restoration, or allowing herself to be at a healthy weight, in her ongoing recovery from eating disorders. And Samia shares how she now works to feel more in control, more powerful, and happier. 
We also talk about how Samia engages in empathy and perspective taking through her songwriting, as displayed in the powerful and intriguing video to her song Triptych, in which she grapples with some of her feelings of powerlessness. Now, as we progress through this season of Going There, our goal is to bring you, the audience, further into the conversation. On the Consequence website and wherever you access these episodes, you'll also find a short questionnaire. We'd love to hear your feedback, so tell us the questions that you have that have been sparked by our conversation with these incredible artists and topics you'd love to see addressed. We will incorporate these responses into episodes, as well as a monthly column on the Consequence website called Ask Dr. Mike. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. This will help other folks find their way into the conversation so they can go there with us. So let's go there and listen to what Samia has to say. All right, so welcome to Going There. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to be talking. So we talked a little bit beforehand about struggling with both anxiety and eating issues. And so that's something that's very common for a lot of people. Unfortunately, those two things tend to go together. And so why don't we talk first about anxiety, because it sounded like that's been something that's that's been there in a, in a more long-term way. Yeah, I've struggled with irrational, hypothetical thoughts and paranoia for as long as I can remember. remember. And, um, and it is always um, about something that uh, can't be reasoned with or it's always about something that like you know I have a retort to anyone's uh response to so it's um yeah it's all like sort of hypothetical stuff and I think that just spun out of control and the way for me to that I learned to control it was through regulating my eating and so one of the things that's tough for people who don't struggle as much with eating to understand is why is eating an area to gain control over one's life? Um, it, can, it can be a really private thing. Um, and it's something that everyone is faced with often three times a day in, in social situations and in every situation there's food and, um, it's something you can do in total secrecy for the most part. Um, and for a lot of kids, especially it's the only thing that they really have control over, even if it's only when they're away from their parents or away from teachers or so it's, it's, um, it doesn't take much to be able to regulate your eating in an unhealthy way. Now, one of the things that people who struggle with eating will describe is that when they're controlling their food, it feels like, even though it's not necessarily the case, that everything else feels a little bit more in control. And and what is it about controlling one thing that gives a sense of more general control? I found for me, I always struggled with self-worth as a kid and it took me a while to land on that as the culprit, but I think it was mostly that I didn't find inherent worth in myself as a human being. So I had to prove that I was worthy. I had to do something and succeed in that thing to be worth love and attention and care. Um, And so food was easy for me to 
quantify. Like if I am over a certain number, then I did bad. And if I'm under a certain number, then I did good. And that is a, a concrete way to know whether or not I deserve to be here. So do you mind me asking just the idea of worthlessness, right? Or not having worth is such a powerful feeling. And I think that for people who don't struggle with it, it's hard to understand how could you get to the point of feeling no worth such that you would have to turn to something like controlling your eating. Do you have any sense of, of how that developed or why? A lot of the time it's trauma for the people that I've talked to. And for me, um, just, you know, moments in childhood of feeling like having to prove yourself or being taken advantage of at an early age and um, trying to understand why those bad things happen. And because, you know, when you're a child, everything is about wonder and joy and magic. And so when something penetrates that bubble, it's, it's like, oh, well, something must be wrong. And if I'm looking around at my environment and nothing's immediately wrong, then there must be something wrong with me. It must be a crack in me and, and I have to fix it if I don't want this to happen again. You know, you're, you're, you're talking about particular events and again, whatever you're comfortable with, you know, we can talk about whatever you're not, of course, we don't have to, but just to give people a sense of what kind of events would lead to that feeling just in your own life. Yeah. I mean, there, there are certain, there are specific events that I can point back to, um, a lot of different kinds of things, but one type of trauma in particular that I, that I've come to really believe is associated with my anxiety and eating disorder stuff is, um, is sexual assault that I didn't understand at a really early age and that I thought I was responsible for, um, and still struggle with feeling that I'm responsible for. Um, I think a lot of people can relate to that just, you know, when it's not as black and white as I was just walking down the street and something horrible happened to me when it's that you, you feel like you or I feel that I put myself in those situations and, um, asked for them in some way and was told, you know, time and time again, that I asked for them in. And so, you know, it re- this, the self-loathing can just accumulate so quickly. Um, especially when your peers aren't on your side, um, and don't believe you, uh, and, and at an age where everything is so formative and so vulnerable, um, you're, you're building during those years, your view of yourself. So, yeah, I mean, I think for me experiencing that stuff and experiencing like the way that other people viewed my body and me as like a tool for their whatever <laughs> was, um, it, it sort of want, it made me want to take control of my body and have power over my body and food was, was a really easy way to attain that. And I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry, obviously that, that, that happened. It's, it's, and there's so many parts of a situation like that, that can be traumatizing. And I think that one of the things that is, is I think very, very tough on someone who has suffered that kind of trauma is that the reaction that people have is often because they're struggling with control. You know, yeah. the idea that like, no, 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 you, you, you had to have done something. It's, it's, you know, there's this just world hypothesis that people believe that bad things can't happen, you know, and, and, and you, you want so badly 
to believe that they can't happen, that people would even be willing to blame someone who's been a victim. And it's, so it's almost like their control issues wind up then, you know, coming, you know, to the point where they're invalidating your experience. And now all of a sudden they're putting their control issues on you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's still even saying that now and agreeing with it. I believe that. And I know that everyone is struggling with those things as much as I am or more, but it's like, it's so easy, especially as a kid to think like, well, you know, this was so avoidable. If only I had just, and, you know, I, I must've wanted some part of this in some way if I, you know, but, but you have to really step back and have a bird's eye perspective on like, I, you know, if I was a child, I should not have been in that position, period. Like it's, it's, it's almost like a mantra that you have to just keep telling yourself and like a fake it till you make it sort of thing. And, and you know, one thing that I just want to say on, on that point that you brought up that idea of if something bad happens to us that we think to ourselves, well, we must have in some ways contributed to it, or we might have wanted it to happen. That, that is such a, a powerful and, and so unbelievably wrong sentiment. And I kind of want just, you know, anyone listening to kind of realize that that idea that, that if something bad happens, that it's our obligation to pour over every single thing that we did that might have been the cause in the hopes of finding something that maybe we did is so damaging. And then, and, oh, 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 did I lose you? Oh, oh here I am. <laughs> And, and, in it, and in addition to that, the idea that if, if, if you're not aware of something to think, well, I, there must be something I'm not aware of is so it, it gets back to that anxiety that you're talking about, because there's no way of disproving it. And it's, you're just left with blame with no evidence, which is, which is horrible. I mean, in, on top of an already horrible situation. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> Blame with no evidence is a really good way to put it. And, and evidence becomes almost unnecessary in your life after that. Um, it's sort of arbitrary because it, it's like, well, nothing's real. <laughs> and no one's, no one's perspective is necessarily correct. And because, you know, I, something that I struggle with a lot recently still is trying to see every side of a of a situation. I was complaining to my dad about, you know, someone really hurting me on the phone recently. And I kept saying, well, I, I get their perspective. Like I see where they're coming from and it must be so hard for them for, because of X, Y, and Z. And he was like, sometimes it's okay to just be hurt and just deal with your pain and your side of the story. And you don't have to rationalize, you know, but it's so easy for me to just think, well, well, there's no real evidence in either direction because we're all perceiving it differently. You know, yeah, and it's this is such a great example of when the person who's being empathic and the person who's being responsible and the person who's like trying to, you know, really work things out in some ways is indirectly punished because you know, and and the way that I would almost think of it is that it's it's great to do that, but maybe second. You know, and in no way is like interfering with that first part of being like, you know, because it's 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 too much. Like it's almost like it's too complicated to try at once, you know, to think of all those sides. Like, but that first validation of like, wait, something's wrong here. Like something was done, 
and I don't like it and I got to figure out why. Okay, that that's that. Now, before I take action, let me consider, you know, everyone's perspective here. That puts you in the most power and the most control. Um, but it's 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 tough, you know, it's tough to hear because it's just like, wow, you know, that's that's the that's the kind thing to do what you're doing. <laughs> and yes, I think what you said about taking action is really really resonates because that that does seem like the appropriate time to be considering all sides of the story and be empathic and be considerate of other people's feelings but there you know you have to it's like the put your own mask on before you assist your neighbor thing of like you know I have a lot of friends who see it the way I do and I have to we all have to remind each other like you you will not function you will not be able to be there for the people who need you if you can't be there for yourself. And it seems so cliche and like so easily worked around, but it's just not. Well, because I think that to some extent, one of the things that is, is very difficult, I think for people when they're in the moment, when, you know, let's take something like this, which is, it sounds like it was more of a verbal, uh, you know, it was kind of a verbal issue that you had with someone. It, I think that one of the things that's so tough for people to realize is that it's, it's in everyone's best interest for, in this case, you to take care of yourself first, because when you approach the person, if you're not sure where you're at, you're not really going to know how to either set the right boundaries. You're not going to know how to frame the issues. You're not going to know how to mend the situation. And what winds up happening is that it all just becomes confusing. And, right. you know, and, and, and even if someone has been unkind, if, unless you're under the impression that they're intentionally being unkind and want to continue doing so, if you're under any impression that they want to, in the case of this kind of verbal encounter, like mend the relationship, you know, it's, it's, it's in their best interest for you to know what would do that. Right. Yeah. I, I think I've spent too much time in my life considering what is in everyone else's uh best interest maybe but but it is so hard because then you say that out loud and and i i would never want to lose that part of myself i would never want to um be less empathetic than than i am but (laughs) there's a balance you know that that's an interesting concept if you're if you're okay with looking at it because one of the things that happens when we have traumatic experiences and then the, the consequences is that it is natural to lose empathy. It's natural to lose empathy for ourselves. And it's, it's natural to not believe that the world is an empathic place, which, which quite frankly, a lot of times it's not. And, right. and how do you balance sort of being able to protect yourself and still be the person that you want to be and see the world in the way that you want in the context of something horrible happening? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine what that feels like for someone whose first instinct is to blame themselves. Like, I think if, if I do feel sort of armed by that in some ways that like, (laughs) that I only ever take it out on myself really generally in, in meaningful ways, like, um, but I, I I can't imagine, you know, that would just make someone so nihilistic and, and the outlook would just become so gray. Um, because I feel that when I turn it, that rage inward, like, 
I just can't imagine what the world would look like in that scenario. Yeah. Do you mind talking just about the, how, like how anxiety manifests for you and then how the eating issues played out? Because, you know, it, it can be different for everybody in terms of both of those things. Yeah. I, I was always anxious and paranoid as a kid. Like I, I, I always think about this one day on the beach with my parents when my, my dog was running out on these rocks and the waves were crashing into the rocks. And I was so scared that my dog was going to drown. <laughs> and I was just sitting, and I couldn't enjoy this day on the beach because I was sitting there crying like, she could drown, she could drown. And, um, and that's how I, it feels when, you know, I couldn't acknowledge that like the dog was fine. It was a beautiful day. Like this is my one opportunity to have a fun childhood day at the beach. And I was spending it thinking about something that was completely out of my control either way. And I couldn't prove that it wouldn't happen. Um, but that's how it feels still. Anytime I have a fear that's grounded in nothing, I can't prove that it won't happen. So I have two choices and I could either sit there for hours and think about it happening, <laughs> which won't change that like outcome, or I could just live my life. And that's something I have to constantly remind myself. But when I was younger, I, I hadn't gotten there yet. So it was like, I had to just channel it all into the one thing that I knew I could control, which was my eating. And it was something that made me feel powerful when I felt powerless and it was something that made me feel worth other people's time. And that I think was the most important thing was like when I was in a room, I knew that I deserved to be there because I hadn't eaten that day or whatever. Now for some people, when they restrict their eating, it can, it can lead in a couple of different ways, whether it's more anorexic where your weight gets very low or more bulimic where there's binging and purging. If you feel comfortable do you have a sense of if it went in either of those directions? Yeah, I did everything. I, I was bulimic kind of <laughs> for a while. It, the bulimia was more about self-harm because it doesn't really make you lose weight. It actually kind of gain weight and it slows your metabolism so much. Um, and it's really just disgusting. And so I think it, it's, I really relate to friends of mine who, who grew up, um, cutting themselves as a, as a form of self-harm, because I think that's what that was for me. It was just like a pun. It was fully just self-flagellation. And, um, but then when I realized that didn't work, <laughs> it wasn't getting me closer to, to a goal that I had. Anorexia became the thing. And I struggled with that on and off between, I think it was probably 12 when it started and 19 or 20 when, when it started getting better. You know, one of the things you're talking about is that sense of worth. And I think that one of the very unfortunate things that we have on a societal level is that eating disorders are wildly encouraged indirectly yeah. until the, the very, very, very most extreme end. You know, people constantly not knowing necessarily what somebody is doing or not doing, they'll comment on someone being thin or, oh, you're always so well put together or mm. you, know, you always look so good in clothes. And these are things that, that people feel very comfortable just saying constantly and not, not recognizing the fact that they're often reinforcing 
an eating issue because then the person who's struggling with eating is sitting back there being like, oh, it's working. I'm getting this worth. Yeah, I experienced so much of that. And people don't mean to do it at all. We're all struggling with the same, we're all impacted by the same, you know, media and cultural memes that are telling us we're supposed to look a certain way and be a certain way. And so I would never fault anyone for encouraging that, but, but it, yeah, I mean, it's in everyone. And, and that's why these, these things can last so long because it really feels worth it. Um, before your health starts failing, like no matter how many people tell you it's going to ruin your life, no matter how fatigued and like gone you are, there's, it just doesn't feel worth it to stop until until there's a real ultimatum. And yeah, I mean, it's just really, really hard to break through to someone who, who is being encouraged by their peers and by society so much to keep doing this thing that's hurting them because it, yeah, it, it like, it is really hard to stop. Um, yeah, because it's, it's so, you know, I, I hear what you're saying because like, you know, I, I work with people with eating issues and these things come up, but the thing is, is that the reinforcements are so visceral and immediate. Yeah. You, know, you get, you get the control and you get the people complimenting you and you get the, the sense of, you know, sometimes people even envy, you know, like, <laughs> oh, I wish I could, I wish I could do that. I mean, people, people will even say, you know, like whether or not they mean it, but they're like, oh, I wish I could get an eating disorder, you know, like I wish I had that kind of power. And then on the other side, there's like, well, there's this like sort of distal thing that might happen. Yeah, you know, maybe I, at some point I won't, you know, my metabolism or my physiology, like, yeah, 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 yeah. But look at, look at all that I'm getting right now. And that's, that's why it's, it's so hard in that moment to, you know, sort of make that decision to stop because it's like, look at all the things that you're getting until the, the really negative consequences really, you know, kick in. Yeah. I mean, I thought I was like totally inept. I, I, I thought that everything was wrong with me when I was at my lowest point and, you know, so hungry and so tired. I thought that I just like, wasn't a functional human being, but it was because I was like dying. I mean, it was because my body was, I wasn't, I, you know, I was really truly just starving. And it's amazing looking back on that, you know, knowing what I'm capable of now and going like, Oh my God, if only I had known, like, I think it was because I was so young and this happens to so many people, but I thought that was who I was because I was still becoming who I was. So it was so confusing, you know, when people would tell me, Oh, your life could be so much better because that was what I had known. And, um, and I felt so much more confident when I was at my lowest point, even though I, I was miserable, I felt confident walking into a room. Um, and it wasn't until so much later that I realized like I was in control of that confidence. <laughs> like no one was actually wanting me to be there more or less because of the way that I looked or the people that mattered at least weren't. Um, and it took me so long to get to a point where I could like give myself that confidence at any weight, at any, you know, no matter what I was wearing or who I was with, like it was, I didn't realize that it just actually comes from you. Cause it sounds so cheesy and it sounds false, but it really, it ended up being really powerful to figure well, that out. Yeah. And it's like, how would you know that? I mean, the thing that's so like sort of at the simultaneously, like, you know, persuasive and appalling about an eating issue is that every single day 
you start again. You know, it's like the control mm-hmm. that you have. It's like, well, it's not like you control. It's not like you won a race and now it's over. There's another, another race the next morning. There's another opportunity to show how much control you have, how much power you have, how much worth you have. And it takes all of your energy. And, and then it's like, oh, I did it. But then the next day, if you don't do it again, you've lost all of that. So it's like, oh, okay, this is another, it's like an ongoing competition. And it's like, that's, it's horrible, but it also, it also feeds the system because you can get that reinforcement every single day. Yeah. Yeah. And it sets this obviously completely unattainable standard for yourself that you, especially if one day, you know, if one day I were to eat less than the day before, then that's the new standard, you know, because it's like about getting as, as low as you possibly can. And, and it wasn't even, it wasn't even about my body at a certain point. It was just about how much I could push myself and how, how much I could struggle and like still wake up the next day, because for some reason that made me feel strong, you know? And the, and the problem is, is that even, you know, looking at things like societal standards of, of beauty and body image, et cetera. But this is another thing that we have as a society, which is that we do value people who can push themselves Mm. to the very brink, you know, whether it's like people who work a hundred hours at a, at a job, you know, at, at the risk of all their health and well-being, whether it's playing a sport where they get concussions, like, you know, and, and to a certain extent with eating issues, you know, people, you know, you'll watch like when someone for a sport has to, or, or for a movie role has to lose or gain weight, everybody will kind of marvel like, oh my God, they did that. Look at what they did to their body. It's like, that's, that's a backdrop of all of this. So it's, it's, again, it's not like that's something that you just made up out of nowhere. That's something that you probably observe to a certain extent. And, and again, getting rewarded for something that's horrible is such a confusing message. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And then, you know, the, the body dysmorphia becomes so bad too. And you really just think like, and I didn't believe, I just didn't believe people who told me it would get better. I didn't, I thought that they were faking it. And I thought that in my mind, in, in such an unhealthy and low place, I really thought that they were like quitters you know, for doing that, because that's how I was, that's how I viewed myself. And once I did start recovering and realizing that, like, it became so clear to me much more quickly than I thought it would, that like my, my life didn't have to revolve around food. And once it was about chemicals in my brain, like once my brain got back to normal, I could do things without thinking about food. I could have conversations and go to dinner and go places and, you know, lead a normal life that didn't revolve around my eating. But I only got there because I had to push myself through the initial stage of recovery, which is the worst part. Yeah. So if if you feel comfortable talking about that, because weight restoration is one of the, the most important parts of recovering from an eating disorder, because as you said, just on a, on a biological level, when our weight is super restricted and it's, it's really low, we think in a different way. And it's not until we get back to a healthier weight that all of a sudden we, we seem to look at it in a certain way. Yeah. It, it, I couldn't see clearly until I got to a certain, into to a healthy 
weight where my body was functioning normally and my brain was functioning normally. I couldn't, it was totally irrational all the time. What I was seeing was not what was there. And it's just really hard to get, when I talk to people now, like I, I understand how hard it is to get through that part because it's like, how, how can you put that much trust in someone else to tell you that what you're seeing is wrong and that you will be happy at the end of this. And part of it is like, well, I put in so much work for the past eight, however many years of my life. Like you really expect me to just let go of this now because you're telling me to. And, and I understand that frustration as well, but but it's just so much better. Like you just can't function that way. And, and that's where I think for a lot of people, the issues of trauma can also come in, which is that, you know, it's not like listening to all of you has necessarily like made things work out for me in the past. You know, like that's, that's, that's something that people have trouble. It's like, why don't you believe me? Why don't you trust me? And they don't ever think to themselves like, well, you know, trust isn't something, trust is something you have to earn. And if, if we're in a society that to a certain degree, like blames people who have suffered from trauma for their trauma, if we set up a situation where we kind of implicitly and explicitly encourage eating issues and we drive people to high perfectionistic standards and we don't listen when people are struggling and then we turn around and say, well, oh, oh trust us. It's like, well, I don't know. Does that even, does that even sound smart for somebody to do that in that case? Yeah. I mean, it, it didn't, <laughs> it didn't to me. I, I couldn't, I didn't know who to believe and who to, tr- because the other thing was, you know, when I looked at other people's lives and other people's eating habits and their bodies, like I never, and I don't know if everyone else, I, this may be sort of a unique experience, but like even at my lowest points of having an eating disorder, I never felt judgment for anybody else's eating or body or like, I just thought, especially people who could move through life, like without that kind of struggle. Like I just thought they were magic. I really just thought they had some magic thing that I didn't have. And I respected it so much, but I couldn't turn that respect back to myself. Like, and yeah, I think, I I think it was in a lot of ways, like, yeah, why, why is the world the same world that hurt me telling me to stop doing this thing that I've found that feels like it's helping me. But I also was just like, oh, these people are different from me. Like if they're not struggling with this, then that means they have some magic power that I don't have and I will never have. Yeah. And if you don't mind me asking, like, how do you, you know, eating issues and anxiety are kind of ongoing recovery issues, you know, and I don't know just if there are things that you, that you did or, or tend to do in an ongoing way that, that help you with that. I still, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever stop struggling with it completely, but then again, like, I don't know anyone who doesn't think about it. It's just seems like inextricably linked with like being perceived and going outside and going on the internet and you like can't, it's just totally unavoidable. And I think that's something that we have to, or I I at least have to remind myself to forgive myself for like, I'm always going to have bad days always going to have days where I'm restricting without realizing it. And, but it's really about like the way I treat myself after that and the choice that I make. I went, I did a, a 
a movie for the first time in uh, May. And subconsciously, I felt myself really falling back into those habits because I knew I was going to be on camera and I was being put in outfits and stuff. And, um, and it was like a real struggle to remind myself every day to make the choice to choose happiness. It sounds so nerdy, but it really like, that's what I had to do was, was, was acknowledge that, that it was either happiness or starving myself. And there's no in between. Yes. Choosing happiness is nerdy and nerdy is awesome. We just said, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And that's, and that's something that at the end of the day, that really is one of the most fundamental decisions is because with all these things that we're talking about, about how persuasive it can be and how uh, in some ways, some people think of it almost as an addictive or compulsive process. The, the biggest thing to kind of recognize is that it ultimately doesn't work is the problem. It, yeah. it works in the sense that you do the thing that you're trying to do, but the control that you crave isn't really there because what you start to realize is that it's kind of like a, you know, almost being in a situation where you get a hundred every time, then you get a 97. It's like, well, where are the other three points? And, you know, you think, you think to yourself like, wow, this thing that I'm doing to get control that's supposed to then make me feel control in a deeper way. It's the opposite. Now I'm I'm just to some degree beholden to this process. Mm. And so that's one of the things, you know, a lot of times when people ultimately give it up, it's not because they say to themselves, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I've come to some epiphany. It's sort of like, wow, this, this isn't working. I'm not going to be happy doing this. I'm doing all the things right that my eating disorder would tell me. And, and it's just not working. Yeah. I mean, it, it didn't for me, it didn't work. It, and I know I could do it again. I know how to do it again. <laughs> I spent a lot of years practicing. And so anytime the thought comes up, like I try to play the tape all the way through and get to the end of it and go, okay, so I'm, you know, at my lowest point again, and I'm doing all the things and I'm starving myself and I'm miserable. And then what, like a for who <laughs> B like, I'm, I'm not willing to give up the life that I have now. And I worked really, really hard for it. So the, the urge will always be there the temptation will always be there. I think for, you know, people who struggle with addiction too, I've talked about, but it just, it doesn't just go away. And it's, and it's, it, it's an unrealistic standard to expect yourself to just never think about it again. Um, but it, if you have that choice now, because you, you know, I've seen the other side and I like the other side better. And so it's, it's a, yeah, I got, I have to work for it, but it, it's worth working for. Okay. So, I want to I want to transition a little bit to something that brings together a few of the things that we've been talking about and you and I talked about this beforehand which is the the wonderfully absolutely bizarre video for <laughs> Triptych and I and I say that in I that that video is completely fucked up and I say it in in the most endearing way I was sitting there being like wow like who thought of this this is Awesomely disturbing. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And 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 I would encourage anyone to to go watch it. There's a lot of what we've been talking about in there, and I just wanted to highlight a couple of the things. You know, one 
is the perspective taking because I actually felt in a, in a very surprising way that there was empathy for in the, in the video, there was a, what, what, is, what is that? Was it, it was a doll of some kind. Was it a, was it was, it? I'm, I'm supposed to not say puppet and I'm supposed to say dummy. It was a dummy. Okay. It was, it was a, <laughs> it was a dummy. So I don't want to give too much away for the video, but, but one of the things that was so striking about it was that it goes back to that thing that you were talking about, about perspective taking. I felt as though, and I, maybe I'll look at it again and, and have a different opinion, but I felt as though you were viewing that interaction both from your perspective and from the perspective of the dummy. Is, is, that, is that fair or did I just miss on that? Am I just empathizing Classic. with the dummy for-, for No, that was, that's exactly right. That's just such a- uh, uh, me thing to do, but <laughs> that's exactly right. No, it, it is. And do, do you want to talk a little bit about the song and the, and the video in this context? Because it seemed to be a lot about issues of control, about body image as expressed through relationships, about like, what do you do when you're faced with somebody or something that's just not responding the way that you want to? <laughs> yeah. Well, so once I dealt with the eating disorder, you know, physically, the underlying issues obviously are still there. And if, if it's about self-loathing and feelings of powerlessness, like that can manifest in so many other ways. And I've found, you know, especially it, having it come from a source of sexual assault trauma, uh, it, it, um, it was so easy to not take my body seriously and to let that be sort of like a uh, <laughs> shield, you know, um, the same way that I was using it when I had eating disorders, it sort of just became like an easy way for me to take out my anger towards myself. Um, and I, I found myself in a lot of situations where I was sort of harming my body without realizing it, um, before I had to really look at the, the self-loathing and under, try to understand it and try to free myself from it and figure out ways to really build self-worth, uh, in the absence of all those other tools I was using like in a vacuum, why am I worthy of love in a vacuum? And it, and it, the answer has to just be because I exist, you know? Um, and it's so hard to get there from where I was before, but, but it, it, yeah, it took a lot of, so that <laughs> video was sort of just, a um, uh, the easiest visual portrayal of like that struggle. No. And it's, it's just that, what you're talking about, about this idea of self-loathing yes. and how once it gets, it gets in us and once it's something that's active in us, it has a life of its own. It's very similar in that way with the eating issues. It's got its own reinforcement system that's almost separated from the world. And yet at the same time, like we're not necessarily always aware of that. So we're, we have this own process going, but we're still interacting with the world and, you know, again, what, what was so interesting about the video was, was this idea of somehow this, this object that was so not gratifying 
was still like the self-loathing was still kind of operating in its presence, you know, and then that, that's just, and that's sometimes I think how it feels a lot of times when we have that self-loathing is that there's people there, but like they're, it's like, we're listening to them, but we're not really listening to them. Like we care about them, but it's like, it's not necessarily going to help, you know, like this idea, like if someone says, Oh, you should, you know, like, I, I feel like when, when we're self-loathing the idea of someone saying, Oh, you should love yourself. It's like, Oh, you know, it's great. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, I, was, I was choosing and, and it was like either self-loathing or self-love. And I was just like, you know what? Self-loathing today, you know, this, feels bad. this is easier. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, but, but it feels to some degree like, like it, the world almost at times feels like that. It feels like, it's like what, like I'm trying to get something out of this, but what am I getting? And and even when you know you're not getting it, it's like worth trying again because the options feel so limited. And and I, I've definitely had to look at patterns of surrounding myself or putting myself in situations that were harmful to me with people that weren't respecting me because I didn't think I deserved better than that. And it doesn't, it's like, how do you qualify better I, it's like so hard to even make sense of in your brain like what is actually good <laughs> and what is sustainable and what is actually feeding me and what is just ephemeral you know instant gratification stuff that it's it's it really takes a lot of thinking yeah because people are especially when you're young but even at any age you know you're it's it's not like again like it's this we're joking about the idea of oh self-love versus self-loathing it's not like we've all had oh we've had these amazing satisfying gratifying relationships that have lasted for so long but we're just not sure if we want to necessarily continue in that vein what we (laughs) want is really like you know self-destructive and ungratifying relationships it's no like part of it is that this promise. And again, it gets back to that issue of control. You know, sometimes it feels as though we're fed these ideals so that everybody feels more in control and comfortable. You know, it's like, oh, no, no, it's out there. Real love is out there. Real connection is out there. And, and yes, it is in some, in some cases, but it's not like it's right there for everybody. And so, you know, we think like, oh, well, it should be X, Y, or Z, but we don't know. And so we're, we're kind of fumbling about figuring out like, how do we make this work? And I think one of the toughest things is for people to not hear that that's normal. Like nobody's got this figured out. I I will say nobody has this figured out. No, you know, we're all just like trying our best. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's amplified too. When you do, someone does earn your trust and you do get to a point of believing them when they say those things, experiencing betrayal at that point is sort of like, I mean, that's like the straw that breaks the camel's back. It just is, you know, and that's inevitable. Like, you know, you, especially in youth, like heartbreaks happen, you know, people lie. It, it, you go through those things, but like the foundation has to be strong enough to withstand that. And that like the only way you can get there in my experience is like, focusing on it and working on it and not like looking for it, turning outward to find it. Yeah. And and like some of the things we were talking about before about your own, you know, oxygen mask, it's like, listen, if you experience that trust and it's like, and it just feels, it's so wonderful 
to feel like, oh yes, this is how it's supposed to be. And, and speaking of worth, it's like, and I did it. Like I'm worthy of love. Like mm-hmm. I'm actually able to make that and to lose that and to lose that, you know, even, even if, if, even just for a moment, like sometimes even if, if like the, the magic just isn't there in the relationship, even if the relationship persists, but if there's actual, you know, if there's betrayal in terms of infidelity or the relationship ends, it could be so crushing. And I would definitely encourage people like we were talking about earlier uh, in the podcast, take care of yourself first before you start thinking about like, well, why did this happen? What about the other person? All that. It's like, that's, that's great. It's, it's great to look at those perspectives, but man, if you were willing, if you had the, the, you know, the, the audacity and the strength to go for trust and love, you deserve like the care afterwards. If something doesn't work, you know, like you need to take care of yourself at that point. Yeah. And, and I don't know how true this is. I don't know how confident I am in this statement, but I do feel recently like the more work I've done to love myself, whatever that means, like just to be, to care for myself and to make time for myself and to look at these things that have been issues in the past, the people who I've found in my life are people who are more concerned with my actual well-being than ever before. And I think it's because like subconsciously we kind of know <laughs> like if someone has our best interest in mind, if, if, if we're looking out for ourselves to begin with, like, you know, I think I, it just, it, it attracts people who have also taken the time to figure themselves out and, you know, it, it definitely socially can be helpful too. Yeah, no. And I would definitely say, you know, to, to anyone, like, you know, that taking care of yourself first is so important. One, just because, you know, you're in a relationship with yourself, like how you, you know, you, you could, you think about all the things that you want somebody to do. You want them to, you know, be kind to you and to be interested in what you're doing and to, to, you know, go with you to interesting places. It's like, well, you're, you're definitely the first person to do that with. And it's one of the ways that we learn then, well, what actually makes us feel good? Like, what do we actually want to hear when we're struggling with something is, is how we talk to ourselves. Then like, you can use a little bit of a comparison and be like, well, you know, if you're in the process of being nice to yourself and kind to yourself and loving to yourself, and then someone comes in and they're, they're unkind or abusive, it's, it's also, oh, that, that, that doesn't, that doesn't feel right. Yeah. You know, whereas totally. if you're, whereas if you're not, you don't know necessarily. Yeah. There's no, um, there's nothing to compare it to. There's nothing to measure it against. And yeah, once you have that standard, it's so easy to know like what you expect from other people and what you deserve. I guess not so easy. (laughs) It's easier. No, it's easier. I mean, that's, and that's all you can do is just make it a little bit easier. And, you know, and like you said before about the eating issues, it's like, you know, it's never goes away. It's like, we never have this perfect love. We never have this like, Oh, we're like the most adaptive and like we're the most healthy, you know, it's something that we always just keep trying to get a little bit better at. And again, if you, to encourage people, like if you have the strength to go for those things, to be healthy, to love and be loved, you got to give yourself a break. You just got to, because otherwise like it's, 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 then you're just back in that control cycle, you know, again, where you're just like on a, on a, on a wheel that just keeps spinning. Yeah. Give yourself a break. Such a good it's so real. I keep seeing, <laughs> I keep seeing like 
memes on Instagram about treating yourself like the way that you would treat, you know, a, a little kid. And it seems so obvious, but sometimes it really works to tell myself that, like, it just, you got to do it. You got to just step out of your body for a second and pretend that you are a child. Well, that, that's one of the things I'll, I'll say with people I'm working with is I'm like, listen, I, I, you don't have to be positive. You don't have to be like, you know, a cheerleader. I'm just like, just, just basic kindness and consideration for another human being. It's all I'm asking. Yeah. Like, so like when, like what I'll say to people sometimes is like, if, if, if your self-talk was a third person in the room, mm. what would I think of that person? Would I think wow. that they were being a complete asshole? And mm-hmm. what I say to them is like, look, you don't have to like this person. You don't have to agree with everything. Like, but just talk to them like a human being if you, if you, you know, to start. And getting to that place where we're basically humane, basically kind to ourselves, like you're saying with, with a kid, as, as simple as that sounds, I think it's one of the most difficult things for people. Yeah. And then so rewarding when you get even a piece of it. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's hard. <laughs> well, Listen, it has been so great talking with you. This is honestly, um, you know, your your career is so taking off. I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this stuff. I learned a lot, and I think people are going to really learn a lot from hearing your insights. This has been very helpful to me. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's always good absolutely. to talk through this stuff and, <laughs> like, discovering new things. No, absolutely. Thanks so much. So there it is. Samia talking about her struggle with trauma, anxiety, and eating disorders, and what she does to challenge feelings of self-loathing and powerlessness. Now, there's a lot to take away from the conversation with Samia, but one of the things that she mentioned that I wanted to discuss was something that is unfortunately common among people who have experienced traumatic events and or struggle with mental health issues. Oftentimes, whether intentionally or not, people will invalidate our feelings and our understanding of the events in our own lives. They will seek to avoid or deny what we experienced or how we feel and even judge and criticize us for our emotions and our perspectives. And this is often because just as we struggle with how painful these experiences can be, others have trouble tolerating it, even if it didn't happen to them. And it is so easy in those moments where others invalidate us to then invalidate and question ourselves. Because often we don't want to believe that something bad happened or is happening, or we assume that we could have controlled it somehow. But during those times, we have to start with validating and understanding what happened and how we felt. We must embrace and gain control of our story first, and then we can figure out how we are going to cope. This is a difficult process and one that requires practice and potentially support from others who are understanding and empathic. But it's so crucial that we recognize that we have the power to be validating, understanding, and empathic towards ourselves, even if others are not. I want to thank Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project. And thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know. If you are struggling with eating disorders, anxiety, depression, or addiction, and are looking for help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-622-4357. And if you're thinking about harming yourself and want to seek help, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You may also go to the Sound Mind Live and Consequence websites for more information. So be healthy, be safe, and be kind to yourselves and others. See you next time at the crossroads.